everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee or wine and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 44, Interview with Jeff Berry. You know how for the past 43 episodes, we've been telling you all year that you are writers, or at least you could be writers. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Jeff Berry, or Alexander Laro d'Avigné in the SCA. Jeff started out a techie, flirted perilously with satire, and ended up on Broadway. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Happy to be here. Uh, Jeff and I have known each other for about 35 years. He graduated uh, same university as me with a degree in electrical engineering, and then he ran off to New York to join the theater, and then off to England to study medieval cooking. Uh, Meanwhile, in New York, he started writing plays and cookbooks. Tell us about your steps. It's kind of a terribly interesting way to end up being deeply involved in a creative industry when you started so deeply, well, let's just say not creative in perception. <laughs> well, it's kind of, there's a, you said we could go down rabbit holes. Here we go. So, yes, my degree my undergraduate degree is electrical engineering, but it had a strong uh, computer science focus. And I did up programming mostly for the National Center for Atmospheric Research. But what I ended up doing was systems administration in Unix slash Linux slash Nix systems. And there was a very interesting article that somebody wrote, oh, probably in the late 80s or early 90s, where he noted that a lot of Splatniks programmers thought in literary idiom, and it's a type of computer programming or operating system scripting that attracts a certain literary mindset. So, Although I was working in a technical field, my background really had come out from that sort of literary mindset and the theater. So it wasn't as big a leap as it might sound at first, at first blush. I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, we, we knew each other very, very well through college, and yet I didn't see you participating in any theaters. I mean, you talked about having done some in high school, but it seemed to kind of disappear entirely for a few years there. It did. It did. So, you know, flashing back to high school, where, in fact, we, we first met, um, I was very active in theater in high school and, and, the, and also active in, in the SCA. And then it was time for college and something had to give and what gave was was the theater so it was the engineering and working hard to get that degree and then the theater fell by the wayside and the SCA sort of took up the slack of of social life did you get the oh shit I need to do something that's going to earn real money and uh, that's how you got into the technical things or not so much um my dad 
is an electrical engineer. And in fact, I ended up taking electromagnetic fields and waves from the same guy who taught him electromagnetic fields and waves some 20 years earlier. And I remember the delight of having a temp job one, one spring break and being able to call you up and say, hey, Jeff, I know what your dad does. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and there was also, in, and it, and at a college, there was also a weird SCA connection because one of our friends in the SCA was the lead technician at the electrical engineering department. And I was coming back from an SCA event in his van and missed a midterm because we got trapped south of Raton Pass in February oh. and, and was able to say, no, 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 professor, look, this guy who works for you can vouch for the fact that I didn't just blow it off. I was stuck in New Mexico. <laughs> um, and I do agree with you for a piece on it. I mean, I was disappointed with, with Windows later after Unix had such magnificent error messages. I can't find the file you're looking for. I'm sorry. As opposed to Windows that had, you know, syntax error, core dump. Yeah. Well, and so the people who were responsible for doing a lot of the early Unix error messaging and stuff like that had a very literary, literary bent. And if you look at some of the shell scripting stuff that you can do, it's got a certain poetry and charm to it. Uh, programmers talk about elegance in code. And it's really hard to do that if what you're doing is dragging and dropping in visual basic. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I got quite <laughs> enough sneer in my voice on that. In visual But yeah, so I was doing the, so, so the theater fell a little bit to the, to the wayside uh, while I was at, at, at college, but I picked it up again within months of graduation. Um, and going to say you graduated and then suddenly the next thing we all heard was I'm going to New York to be an actor. And, and the first thing I thought was, you know, you're just such a damn smart person. You won't have to wait tables. You've got a, a computer science area. <laughs> so the only actor in New York that doesn't have to wait a table and ask if somebody wants fries for that. Well, I got lucky with New York. And to be fair, that may have been the next thing you heard, but it was five years later. Well, fair. <laughs> um, Blink of an eye. It didn't eye. seem like five years. <laughs> Blink of an eye. It was a busy five years. Well, and what happened was uh, in those five years, I was working mostly with a theater company in Boulder called the Upstart Crow. And I think in those five years, I did probably 15 shows with them. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so... So the, the playwriting is a, is a lateral move because I was doing so much theater. And my mom, of course, is, is a writer and short stories, novels, and also plays. So I don't think I knew that, that your mom was a writer of plays. So Yeah, yeah. Actually, these days, she's doing a, a lot of short plays. There's... Denver right now uh, has a lot of sort of these 10-minute play contests or short plays or one-act one play festivals, and she's got a lot of material. This is a heads up, up for that. anybody that might be listening in Denver. You know, jump on in there. Go play. Jump in there for plays uh, and look up Linda Berry. 
She is. Awesome. We will, we will link her, by the way, of all of these exciting things I tracked down and try to find links to to put on our pages afterwards. So Lovely, lovely. Delighted. So did you ever read any texts or book? I mean, there's a gazillion how to write stories, this, that, and the other. Uh, the only book on writing a play I've run into is Carol Wolfs, and we had the good fortune to interview her um, on another episode. So did you read any how to or scholarly works on this is how you do a play script or... No. Um, <laughs> as, with, as with so many things, uh, it, was, it was bootstrapping. And, you know, if you, if you got into computers when I did, I, my degree's in electrical engineering because when I started, there was no degree in computer science. There was, like, the year after I went to school, there was. But, and for some reason, that's kind of the story of my life in a lot of ways is I decide to do something and it's not right there. So I end up having to figure out how to do it on my own, which can be rewarding, but is also enormously exhausting and can be dreadfully frustrating. Yes. One has seen now that you can go online and download Microsoft Word and a bunch of other things had the ability to say, here is the script format, just start typing and it will automatically format things for you. So do you use any of those tools now or do you still do it the old fashioned way of, right? Text, edit, text editing in VI. No, that's not true. Um, no. Uh, Emacs sucks. Emacs, Emacs is for losers. <laughs> um, yeah, if you can't do it in VI, it doesn't need to be done. But... No, I, I, I do not have any of the, of the schmancy tools. And part of that, part of the reason why I've never bothered with that too much is most of the plays that I've written are, you know, for my sins, uh, iambic pentameter blank verse. So the so formatting... fell over a Shakespeare best works of once hit your head and never came back out? Something like that. It's, it was a combination of a couple of things. Um, one is the, the restricted structure of working in a, in a verse play form is perversely liberating because you really have to dial in what it is that you're trying to do. No, to I, make I've it, heard that. Yeah. I've heard that said quite a bit, actually, that um, not just about iambic pentameter, but about any form that, you know, it's, it's easier to be creative if you have some, some structure first. Yeah, and, you know, and it's, and, and it's the same with any sort of writing, I find, at least. I mean, even if I'm just writing straight fiction, you have to have, there's those fundamental choices that you have to make, right? Is this first person? Is it third person, third person omniscient, first person, first person omniscient, writing as God? Oh, don't get Jeannie started. <laughs> Jeannie only writes no. in first person omniscient? No. no. <laughs> Jeannie has many opinions on, on person and I, And the gays, I mean, I, I, I say it so often, but if you've never read Kate Elliott's essay on omniscient breasts, Go thou after we finish here and go read it right away because it's magnificent. Oh, great. I got her started. Oh, 
Yes, du duly noted. Um, N.K. Jemison has been playing with second person. Takes a little to get used to, uh, but similarly, what was it Charles Strauss, if you remember? Charlie Strauss, has, yeah. Has some uh, second person. Yeah, well, and, and, and tense. Are we writing in past? Are we writing in the historical past? Are we writing in present tense? These are all decisions that about structure. And or it's not a decision, and you just have to do a lot of editing. <laughs> yeah. If you don't make that decision, you, you pay for it down the line. Yes, you're not my or, real mom. That, uh, or your readers pay for it down the line. Yes, that's right. What's the, what's the old joke about? I, I, it's probably not about Ulysses, but it might as well be. You know? Yeah, which is to, which is to say, why, why should I make it easy? It was hard to write. It should be hard to read. <laughs> I believe right. that. I entirely believe that. I was um, said, I've, I've suffered for my art. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> yes. this, so you Steve, just open that sounds up. like Stephen Wright, but yeah. So you just open up a VI editor, new files start going, or have you ever tried any of the tools like Scrivener or some of the other bits of organizing no. your thoughts for writing? No, I, I am, I am, I am, I will, I have broken down and will use a, a modern word processor. I won't but, tell anybody. It's, I know. By the way, WordPerfect is not a modern word processor, just in case you... I no longer use WordPerfect. Uh, <laughs> good on you, mate. <laughs> but actually, actually started on something called WordStar. WordStar. Oh, yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah. Well, it was, it was available for, oh, God, DOS 2.1, something like that. Showed up in my in my parents' house in 1981, something like that. I think I've used that. Yeah. Well, my, my handwriting was so dreadful. I was typing and word processing my school, school work by the time I was in sixth or seventh grade. It was the only way people could read it. But, so but yes, I, I, I open up a word processor and, and start are you a are you a pantser then or a plotter? You sound you're sounding like a pantser a little bit. Well, the real problem is for me is that I'm good at character, I'm good at setting, and I'm and especially for drama, it, it's handy. I'm good at dialogue, not so good at plot. Hmm. So some of the most successful stuff or some of the stuff that's been the most fun at least is where I've got, it's sort of an adaptation. Um, I mean, the most recent sort of, yeah, probably the most recent play I wrote was uh, the Vita Sancti Margaritae or the, it was an adaptation of the life of St. Margaret for a production, which was all about dragons that was being done up in, up in York. And St. Margaret has dragons. So I had source material. It was great. Well, I had Saints uh -huh. Mark and Rita are revered all over the planet, really. Indeed they are. And as, as well they should be. We, we celebrate the feast day of St. Burrito of Ely uh, most Wednesdays. Uh, uh, that's fair. And, 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 and St. Margaret, Marge and Rita play a significant role in that celebration. 
What do you do when you get kind of stuck? Like you've said, I have written the most magnificent reunion conversation between two old lovers and, and, it's, and it's going great, but now it's like, okay, now I need action of some kind. How do you, how do you fight your way through those, those moments of, okay, what do I have happen next? Do you, do you outline a little for yourself or do you? That's the whole plotting problem. <laughs> and that's, yeah. yeah, and that's the problem. Um, if I know where I'm going, I generally don't have any great difficulty getting there. It's have you the ever problem. Well, in first, then? <laughs> sometimes. Um, uh, or if not the end, certainly where I think it's going to go. I mean, you hear people talking about, oh, I didn't know where this, this, I just started writing it and I didn't know where it was going. And the character started speaking to me. Yeah, and all that. And, and in, in, when I'm writing, if that's happening, it tends to be a digression, often an enormously entertaining digression, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily drive where the narrative arc ends up. Right. Uh, Do you end up leaving it in, or is it something you have to cut out later because it took you? I'm, I'm really bad at I am really bad at cutting out stuff that I think is funny. <laughs> um, I find that I feel you. terribly difficult. Sometimes it, ha sometimes it has to go, but I, I hate that. I hate that. Uh, um, I, I saw the line, kill your darlings, and then somebody said, but mm -hmm. don't kill everyone else's darlings. Don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, you know, and, that, and it's a good point, is if you, if you really fall in love with something, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's any good. I have, um, yes. Right, or that it's, even if it is good, that it's appropriate. Yeah. Or I'm, that it fits whatever work well, you're doing. Yeah, fits, fits. I believe. I'm not particularly worried about being inappropriate most of the time. Well, I don't, yeah, I'm not, I don't mean that in the sense of politically <laughs> correct or something. I just mean. Yeah. No, there's, there's some times where you look at something and it just, and it just doesn't, it doesn't move the story along um, or it doesn't and this and back to back to the drama I was talking or commenting the other day about stage combat because I, I also did a lot of fight direction when I was working with the theater company in Boulder and then we started a theater company in New York and I did all the fights for that and all that and 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 the and even now watching fights a good stage fight or movie fight or whatever, right? It tells you something about the character and it ideally should also move the plot along. Otherwise it's just an explode. It's just explosions, right? So <laughs> from your mouth to Michael Bay's ears, man. <laughs> well, I'm not going to name and shame mind you, <laughs> yeah. but, but if you watch, um, if you watch a good, well-designed stage fight, it drives the plot. It dri and, and it tells you something about the people who are fighting. It tells you something about the character. Does this person fight very cautiously? And are they a counterpuncher? Well, is that appropriate for the character? 
I, I entirely agree. I've, I've always felt there is one of the most important fight scenes of all of plays and literature is Tybalt versus Mercutio. Absolutely. It changes everything. It may, you know, you have blah, blah, some farce about romance and teenagers that aren't getting enough sleep to, holy crap, somebody's dead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, yeah. now we actually have a reason for all the rest of it to happen. Right. And, and Tybalt is, is the swordsman and he's confident and he feels like he knows what he's doing. And everybody in the world of the play talks about, oh my God, he's the dude. If that doesn't come across in the fight, then, then you're losing something. You've, you've missed a trick. Yeah. The fight should, should set up and everybody should think that Tybalt's going to win. Because yeah. he should. Yeah. But he doesn't. So what happens? Yeah. You know, um, not, so much, not so much doesn't against Mercutio, but, you know, that whole Romeo stabbing him, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, it's, I don't, whenever I do it, Tybalt trips on something. That's fair. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> I, I have this brilliant offense, goddamn gopher holes. You know? Yeah, basically. It's, yeah, goofy, goofy Romeo. Goofy Romeo beats Tybalt, the badass of, of, of the town. Does, does <laughs> Romeo get in a lot of fights? No, he follows around love poetry, flowers, women. Exactly, you know. exactly. It's true. So, but one of the things, um, one of the reasons why I tend to work with a lot of verse plays is I also tend to restrict myself in the verse plays in particular, but in, in playwriting in general, to very, very few stage directions. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, there's this old, um, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it's something like in all of Shakespeare's work, there are 42 stage directions. Yeah. You know, something like that. Enter, exit, exeunt, they fight, he dies, pursued by a bear, alarums. That, that 42, that seems, well, I mean, aside from being a very auspicious number, of course, Seems like almost impossibly low. Well, I don't know. This there is um in Carol, if you remember back Dave, Carol Wolf talked about this and she said the difference of having it in a play is all of the action and activity has to be in the words. I can't you know, in a movie script I can say we see Dave sitting there drinking his tequila <laughs> straight from the bottle. He pours hey, it over it pours You said you wouldn't tell. <laughs> But, but you see that because that's written into the movie script, whereas I don't have that luxury in a play script, so it has to be, all of my activity has to be right there in well, the world. And, and, and when people would submit us scripts, because we, we had a new play reading series with our theater company in New York, and a lot of times people would submit us scripts that were not play scripts. They were clearly movie scripts. For that sort of reason, and you can get that kind of detail in a play script if you want. Try, try, try reading George Bernard Shaw, for instance. I, you know, I mean, the tragically no, have you. read a great deal of George Bernard Shaw. That, well, and if you have, I'm sure you can remember things where, and Act One, Scene One, left bracket, 
Let me describe the set to you. Let me describe what everyone's wearing. Let me describe everything you ever need to know about the character for four pages before we have a line of dialogue. So a bit of a control freak, you're saying? Well, yes. And my high school drama teacher, I think he was talking about a Pinter script that we were reading for one class somewhere, said that uh, when you read a Pinter script, he doesn't trust actors. Or the director, clearly. Well, or the director. But, and if you read, if you read Elizabethan Jacobian drama in general, it is all in the dialogue, which means that as an actor, you have to not only learn your lines, but you need to pay attention to what everyone else is saying, because it is entirely possible that what you're supposed to be doing is actually in the lines of the people who are before you. Why do you come here so hurriedly? Oh, I guess I should pay attention to that and come on hurriedly, shouldn't I? So, so I very consciously, when I was starting to work with verse plays, was restricting myself to extremely minimal stage direction as well, which again, tends to force you into uh, it's it's stylized, sure, um, but that that but that very structure helps to focus the mind. Yeah. So to speak. Well, again, another way to. I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking. Another way to um, think about that whole structure uh, uh, fosters creativity is. Um, from a technical standpoint, you're narrowing the search space to something manageable, right? If you sure. think of it as a uh, that sort of problem. Yeah. Well, and with any sort of writing, I mean, sometimes, sure, sometimes inspiration strikes and you go, oh, great, I've got X many, mm -hmm. X many words of absolutely brilliant whatever is just going to pour out of me blah, onto the page. Well, I also, I also have a theory on the success of one play versus another. And this is one that I've been sort of contemplating as I watch. I've seen a number of forgettable plays, and I've seen some very successful plays. Somewhere in there is something witty or snarky or clever. And it's that little combination that those bon mots, if you will, that sort of is what is missing out of it people's everyday lives because there's a lot of people that I've known that have never really said anything particularly witty or clever, but they wish they had. And so <laughs> literature and plays and books give them that, oh man, if I'd known that, I could have said that last week to that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, well, and you, and you're kind of touching on a point that, that I'm somebody else, and I forget who it was, and I'm not going to get the phrasing exactly right, but it was somebody talking about drama. Because although I have not read necessarily anything about playwriting specifically, I have read stuff about writing plays, if you see the distinction. <laughs> um, and one of the points that somebody was making is it was it's part of a critique of sort of this uh, day in the life, slice of life sort of style of 
drama or whatever. And they pointed out, that's not interesting. We don't want to see just a day in your life. We want to see an important day in your life or the most important day in your life. Or even in flash fiction, it's, it might be a day in your life in less than 500 words that has some sort of quirk that makes you go, oh. Yeah. Oh. Well, or, well, mm. well if, if it isn't extraordinary, it isn't a story. Or well, yeah. Isn't. Yeah, and sometimes, and sometimes it's just a joke. And sometimes it's just sketch comedy. And that's fine, too. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes you're right. Sometimes it really is just that just that moment um we were i was talking with some friends the, the other uh the other day on a in a different context and one of them so this is all text-based and somebody wrote that best neighbor had had was run ran a restaurant and therefore still had their restaurant contacts to get flour which I don't, I don't know if this is a problem for y'all. Yes. <laughs> we okay. Are, in this podcasting in the time of cholera, yes, almost every store, we now know when the trucks arrive because that's yes. the only time you can get flour or hair dye, apparently. But yeah, flour, flour, toilet roll, uh, canned beans, hand sanitizer, and for a while, tonic water. And, and let's remember, uh, for those of you that are not aware, Jeff is over in England right now. So Indeed. without the gin and tonics, I think the entire English nation might just, you know, collapse. Well, I think here you I, are using gin as cleaning fluid, but we'll, well, that's over an antipathy and allergy towards juniper here. Yes. Uh -huh. Well, but, uh, but I think the, uh, I think the, I think the, the tonic was because that rumor was floating around that anti-malarials were effective. Oh, and so yes. suddenly the ton there was a run on tonic water. Yes. But, Terrific. But, but so my friend said, oh, yes, her, her, she had this contact who could, who could get the industrial quantities of flour. And so she was, she was so her, her friend was now running uh, a black market flour business on the side. Hot. Because... <laughs> Because she could get French strong flour, not Canadian, because a lot of the strong baking flour over here is Canadian, Canadian wheat for some reason. So, okay, fine. So I banged out 800 words about a back alley flour deal because it was funny. Because it is funny. <laughs> because it is well, funny. And, you know, sliced it up into six bits and stuck it on Twitter because they said, oh, this is funny. You should stick it on Twitter. Yeah, okay. All right. So I am actually going to go and uh, put links to the hilarious <laughs> Jeff on Twitter and a few other sites where he's been known to sound off with snarkaliciousness, um, as well as uh, stories, if I can find copies of your old SCA satire. Um, oh, they, put, they, are, they are all linked up. Beautiful. I can send you links. I, I want links, and we will put all these links on our website, <laughs> which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find Jeff, us, uh, Jeff and us both on Twitter, Writers Drinking Coffee is on Facebook. We love emailing questions, and we will have Jeff answer anything for you. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider and occasional host is Dave Welsh. 
Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on minihatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, a lovely woman who enables you to buy all cool WDC swag, including our new Red Coffee is the Best Coffee, and All You Need is a Plan, quote, t-shirts. And thanks for listening. Thank you.